Welcome to Bridges Community Church. And whether you're joining us online or live in person, we would like to say thanks for joining us. And remember, it doesn't matter what you've been through in your life. It doesn't matter what you're struggling with or what you're going through right now. You are welcome here and you are in the right place. We will begin our services in just a few moments. And as we prepare to enter into a time of worship, we would just like to say we would love to connect with you. If you're new with us, head to bridges.info and let us know that you're here and we'll reach out this week and find out how we can be praying for you or how we can help get you connected to our community. Yeah. 
has been arrested and that we have new life in Christ. This morning, I wanted to share a scripture with all of you. Good morning and welcome to Bridges Community Church. I was just talking to my mom and we were discussing this scripture and it was so powerful. So I wanted to share it with you this morning. It's a familiar scripture for probably many of us, but it's from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What an amazing piece of scripture. And I think of this scripture because in the song we're about to sing, we're going to sing about bringing all of our failures, bringing our addictions, bringing our temptations to the foot of the cross. And in this scripture it says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. If that's something that you are struggling with today, we invite you, Jesus invites you to lay your burdens down at the cross. If you are having a hard time looking to Jesus, lay your burdens down and he will help you look to him. Let's continue to worship our God who loves us so much together this morning.
gift that is your son. The gift of everlasting life because you sent your son to walk on this earth. And he went to the cross taking our sins upon himself. He bared the wrath and he died on that cross. But three days later, he rose again. And because he lives, we can be drawn in near to you. Because he lives, we can lay our burdens and our addictions at the foot of the cross. Father, draw us in close to you. Draw us in nearer to you than ever before. Help us to be just with you, surrounded by your love. Help us to see and feel your love, your mercy, and your power because he lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning, everybody. It's always a joy anytime we get to connect with any of our mission partners over video or through email, but also we love it when we're able to be with them in person. So I'm going to invite my friend Matt Lundquist up to join us. Many of you know Matt and Susie. Susie's right over here. Matt has deep connections to this church and to, um, to, to many of you. And Matt's in town, and I want to talk in a moment about why you're in town. But Matt's one of our mission partners, and he has a beautiful campus ministry. And look, here's a book that says, By Matt Lundquist. So uh, we'd love to know more about that. I want you all to have a chance to connect with Matt after the service in the lobby. He's going to be back there happy to shake your hand or give a hug or to just... Um, receive prayers or encouragement or just if you have more questions about his ministry. Matt, welcome, man. We love you guys and just wanted you to have a chance to bring a word of, of greeting and uh, just being here in town. It's great to see you all. Um, my wife and I used to sit in the balcony with other youth and uh, we raised our hand during missions week saying, we'll go. And after college, and getting married, uh, a couple years later, we went off to Denver Seminary. I graduated there in 1985, discovered a passion for uh, apologetics, or philosophy of religion, and found out campus ministry is a great place to apply that trade. I've been continued to, to read and, and have discussions with students. And um, we spent four, almost five years in Oregon at Willamette University, working with Dan Barham, many of you know and then up to Washington State. Right in the center of the state is Ellensburg. We're 100 miles east of Seattle. So that's where we've been for over 30 years now and uh, enjoying God's, uh, God's blessings there and uh, doing campus ministry, discipleship and evangelism among college students. And I enjoy getting emails and texts as we just hear about different prayer needs and you. Uh, often, or, hey, pray for this person, pray for that person as you're going to be meeting with them that day. Tell us about this book. What is it that inspired that? What do you hope that God does through this book? Tell us about it. So, Dirt Roads and Dusty Jeans, uh, 32 trips to Mexico uh, over 36 years. There were a couple of years my wife needed help at home. I couldn't get away on spring break. Maybe a child was born or maybe couldn't get a group together. But 32 trips and... Uh, my passion for uh, short-term missions has been really fueled by the opportunity uh, on a missions trip to uh, learn as you go 
and to build team. We, we not, we, we're going to build a house, but first we've got to build a team. And we spend a total of 24 hours in vans because we, we like to drive down. And it, it's, it's team building and it's a road trip. And then we, uh, we build, uh, build teams, we build a house, and we build relationship cross-culturally. So uh, Dirt Roads and Dusty Jeans, my subtitle is One Man's Journey South of the Border to Find His Soul. And really, my passion for ministry has been fueled by uh, being able to share that with students. Uh, my kids have gone on trips. My wife have gone, has gone on trips with me. And I, I finally figured out, uh, I, after uh, filling a binder with uh, stories and poems, and I thought, what do I really want to say? I was saying, short-term missions has changed my life, and it can change yours. And so there's a foreword written by uh, Gayla Congdon. She's a co-founder of Amore Ministries. They just help under-resourced families have uh, hope. And they say that hope is four strong walls and a roof that doesn't leak. So uh, that's what the book is about. I'd uh, love to tell you more about it. But Yeah, well, and so we want people to go back and to meet with you after, yeah, and, and again, have a chance to, to visit with you. And we want to pray for you. If you all didn't know, uh, Matt's father, Marvin, recently passed. And so that's one of the reasons why you guys are in town and I've told you countless times how much your parents, both Marvin and Martha Nell, have meant to me and have meant to uh, my family uh, whenever we first moved here in 2010. They welcomed us with open arms and your dad uh, was my oldest son's Awana leader there uh, when we moved out in the middle of the year and your dad would always try to find ways to connect with him. So I love you brother and I love your parents and, and our hearts are with you. This has been a, a long journey for the family, right? And for them and we just rejoice that your mom and dad are together in glory. So would you join me in uh, praying uh, for, uh, for Matt and for this family? God, I wanna thank you for my brother. I thank you for his humble heart. I'm always inspired uh, to be around him and to, to hear what you're doing. I pray that you would take this ministry and multiply it and use it this book, the conversations, I pray for open doors. I pray for the gospel to be made evident and clear to those who have yet to hear it or who have yet to say yes to it. I pray that you would use Matt and Susie, God, and that you would multiply their ministry as they're here in town to um, celebrate the life of his dad and, and life of his mom and dad. Lord, I, I, I pray your peace for them. I, Thank you, God, for godly legacies that get passed from generation to generation. And his family is an example of that, and I'm so grateful, God. I pray, God, that we would support them well as a church with our prayers and with our finances. And we pray that you would knit our hearts together as one in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's visit with Matt after the service. We'll continue on with our service of worship. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Thank you, Matt. Can we all stand as we continue our time of worship, uh, and as we do, as we're transitioning here, isn't it awesome to see a choir back up here? Yeah. After rehearsal, Jane asked me, hey, you want me to remove those empty chairs? And I said, no, no, I'm going to use those. And so here I am. There's empty chairs up here. That means we have space for you. Come on and join us. We're rehearsing Thursday nights. Just show up or email me. We'll get you the info. We would love to have you. No experience necessary. Sing by reading the music. 
sing by ear, whatever. Let's just come together and sing together. But yeah, if you can join us in choir, we'd love to have you. And thanks to my good friend, Ron. I, several people have asked me, who's that guy waving his hands at the choir? It's my friend, Ron. So thanks, Ron, for being here. Thanks to the choir. Let's get back to worship.
children to head off to Sunday school. Job 42, 10 through 17. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of his first daughter Jemima, the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Habak. And in all the land there were no women more beautiful, so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Uh, Christians can, uh, can sometimes have a complicated relationship with money and financial prosperity. Have you noticed that? Um, on one extreme, you have uh, prosperity theology, which teaches if you just believe enough or you trust enough that God will give you wealth. And that is not true. Uh, one simple rebuttal of uh, prosperity theology is all of Jesus' closest followers, his disciples, you know, his guys, all of them died uh, penniless, either martyrs or captives. And you figure if anyone would have had enough faith to kind of activate some kind of financial windfall from God, it would have been those guys, uh, but they didn't. Prosperity gospel is just false. It's false, false, false. But on the other extreme, uh, is what some people have labeled a poverty theology. And a poverty theology looks at money or financial resources with at least skepticism and at most like outright denunciation saying that all of it is evil. So uh, for example, there have been a number of historians who studied the life of A.W. Tozer, who you may love, um, and have criticized Tozer for giving away so much of his income that it was a detriment to his wife and family. Um, Tozer, if you didn't know him, was he's a phenomenal pastor, author, editor. He has many, many books, um, but his books, Pursuit of God and Knowledge of the Holy, they're fantastic. They're fantastic. The man knew Jesus, no doubt about that, and we can learn much from him. I hope someday I love Jesus as much as Tozer did. But... These biographers have noted, just as one piece of evidence that something wasn't in proper alignment in his life, um, after his death, his wife remarried, and she said um, in reference to her two husbands now, um, Aiden, that's A-W, uh, so first husband, she said Aiden uh, loved Jesus, but Leonard, second husband, loves me. A-W loved Jesus, but Leonard loves me. And we're, we're like, if your wife is saying that, something's 
off, right? Like Jesus and your wife shouldn't be in competition with each other. Like your, your love of Jesus should, should make your wife feel mega loved, right? But it looks like Tozer might have been neglecting her in the name of serving and giving to Christ. That doesn't mean you need to throw away all of your Tozer stuff if you are a fan of his. Uh, you will never find anyone who lived perfectly. Uh, you need to chew the meat and spit out the bone with everybody, including me. You want to filter everything through the grid of Scripture so you can still read him. Feel free. But he's an example of how we can overskew. We can error in our approach to wealth um, and reject it to such an extent that we hurt others. That's poverty theology. Or we can desire it so much. We can desire prosperity so much, pursue it so much that we hurt others in that way, prosperity theology. Our relationship with wealth can be unhealthy in either direction. And thus, Christians often have a complicated relationship with wealth. Today, we are concluding our study in the book of Job. Um, We've been here, this is our seventh week, and next week we're starting in Psalms for the summer. But as we just read uh, the end of the story of Job, Job's fortunes are restored. His health is restored. His reputation and his friends are restored. He even has more children and sees his grandchildren down to the fourth generation. The account tells us that God gave Job twice as much as Job had before. And if we go back to the beginning of the book of Job, it tells us Job was already the greatest man in the East. So now he's double the greatest man in the East. And yet... Job seems to have a pretty healthy relationship with his wealth. Just as he approached pain and suffering with a commendable attitude, we've talked about for so many weeks, he approaches wealth with a commendable attitude. So there is much that we can learn from Job. And as we study this passage, uh, this last passage of the book of Job today, we will see the origin of prosperity, the goodness of prosperity, and then our true prosperity, the origin of prosperity, the goodness of prosperity, and then our true prosperity. So first, the origin of prosperity. Prosperity is a gift from God rather than a reward. Prosperity is a gift rather than a reward. It is tempting to read the story of Job and believe that his suffering um, somehow earned him the prosperity that he gets at the end of the book. Like he paid his dues and now he gets his reward. We often think that way about ourselves. Uh, We had a hard day at work, so we come home, we say, you know, I've earned a piece of pie because I've had a hard day, right? Where it's one of those days where everything has gone wrong, everything broke, everything was late, everything was difficult, the car wouldn't start, the internet went out, the coffee was cold, we stubbed our toe, everything, right? We've had one of those days. We often feel like the universe owes us somehow. We say, I deserve a break. Deserve. And if we're married, and we've had a day like that, we kind of think it's our spouse's responsibility to be the conduit of the blessing which we now deserve. We hope we're going to come home and our spouse will will tell our story of woe and our spouse will just say, you know, watch whatever you want. I'll bring you your favorite snack. That's what we hope our spouse will say because we're owed some kind of relief, like the suffering has purchased me a reward. 
uh, for something that's gone wrong. Um, and now our spouse is going to be able to listen to the universe and give it to us. Um, but very often that's not what happens, um, and I don't know why, but it seems like maybe evil tends to pile up in families all at once. If we've had a day like that and we want to come home and lie on the couch, we open the door and our spouse is already lying on the couch, <laughs> right? Because he or she had that exact same kind of day too, and they are looking to us for the exact same kind of relief that we think we deserve. So we had our story of woe all put together and rehearsed to, the, to convince them of our need for a break, but then they have an even better story of woe, and I was like, well, now what do we do? So we end up fighting about who gets a break, and it makes everything worse, and instead of relief, we get more tension. How to solve that is another sermon, right? Uh, but... Husbands, it's just for free. Love your wife like Christ loved the church, okay? He sacrificed everything for her. That's another sermon. But we believe this, right? We believe that we get a reward for suffering. It's somehow entrenched in us. If we have some difficulty, we think now, therefore, we deserve. So it's tempting to read the book of Job like that. No one has suffered more than Job, so now he has earned the blessing he receives at the end. It's tempting to think that, but that would be a mistake. That would actually be the same mistake that Job's friends made earlier in the book. Remember the false theology of Job's friends is people always get what they deserve. So if you're having a hard time, it's because you deserved it. And if you have health and wealth, it's because you deserve that. And that's incorrect. Uh, it's karma but it's incorrect. God actually says, Job 42.8, that Job's friends have not spoken what is true. So it's very definitively wrong. They are definitely wrong. Um, Job does not get prosperity at the end because he deserves it, just like he didn't get suffering at the beginning because he deserved it. He gets prosperity at the end because it's a gift. As God had sovereignly allowed suffering into Job's life, God now sovereignly provides relief. Verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. Verse 11, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. It's the Lord that gave. It's not that Job earned it in any way. Relief and prosperity are gifts, unearned blessings. You can think about it like this. If one person has had a hard life, another person's had an easy life, it's not like the person with the easy life earned it. Some people are born on third base. Other people aren't even born in the stadium, right? Now, as you might have already sensed, and some of you are likely feeling, the people who generally get most upset over the idea of prosperity being a gift are the people who have accomplished much in life. For high achievers, and there's a lot of us in this room, it's very difficult to believe success is a gift, because high achievers have worked hard. And if they hadn't worked hard, they wouldn't be where they are. And that's true. That is absolutely true. They needed to work hard in order to have what they have. Needed to. Very true. Hard work is essential for success. But it doesn't mean success and prosperity wasn't also a gift. A grace from God. Just think about your own life. Would you have had the same success if you had been born into a different family? Or born into no family? What if you were orphaned in a third world country because both your parents had died of AIDS? If that was your start, would you have gotten to where you are right now? Probably not. What if you'd been born into a place that had zero education available? 
What if you'd been born in the middle of a war zone or a famine? What if you were born into a place that whatever it is that you're particularly gifted to do, maybe computer engineering, you were born in a time of history um, in the world where there was no marketplace for that set of skills. You were born when you needed to kill some woolly mammoth and all you can do is type on a computer. You might not have been where you are today, right? And we didn't earn to be born when and where we were born. We didn't accomplish somehow the circumstances of our birth, upbringing, country of origin. All of that was a gift. I'm not saying we didn't play a role in our success. Of course we do. Of course we worked hard. Of course we needed to work hard in order to have what we have, but there was so much of it that was out of our control. Maybe most circumstances are out of our control. The opportunities we've had are a gift it's the Lord who blessed Job more later in his life than earlier in his life, verse 12. When we read that, we shouldn't conclude something like, oh, that must mean Job was out there hustling twice as hard later in life than he was earlier in life. That's what it means that he was blessed with. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is not how hard Job worked. The point of the passage is prosperity, health, length of life are gifts from God. Prosperity is a gift, not a reward. Okay, secondly, and probably therefore arguably, um, we can see the goodness of prosperity. The goodness of prosperity. It's a gift of God, it's good. Now for most of you, I probably don't have to convince you that prosperity can be good. Probably don't have to put together too great of a case for that. Uh, but for all the A.W. Tozers out there, give it some thought God provided Job with an enormous amount of wealth, enormous. And in the narrative of the book of Job, the prosperity that God provided at the end is really contrasted with the work of Satan who originally destroyed all of Job's wealth, health, prosperity, relationships, with God's permission, of course. But now God restores all of those. So God's restoration is meant to be seen as kind of an undoing of the work of Satan that we saw at the beginning of the book. So there's little doubt it's supposed to be a happy ending. We don't read this part of the story and say, how dare Job have wealth? Wealth is evil. Like, that's not the point of what we're reading here. We're supposed to be happy for Job and celebrate what God brought into his life. I don't know who needs to hear this, but it's in the text, so someone needs to hear it. It's not wrong to have resources. It's not wrong to have a lot of resources. Now, it could be. It could be wrong. It's not for nothing that Paul warns Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So we really do need to be honest about the state of our heart in regard to prosperity. And we should admit, it is hard to be honest. Our hearts are a mixed up mess. But as best as you can self-evaluate here, look into your own heart and really think through it. To whatever extent we feel we need financial means, like we must have them, or to whatever extent we feel incomplete or insufficient if we don't have means, or to whatever extent we feel inferior or inadequate to people who have more than us, or the opposite side, to whatever extent we feel superior to people who have less than us, 
To whatever extent we feel any of those things, it will always lead to problems. We really do need to listen to our hearts. It's so easy to fall into the trap of being in love with money, to think we need it, to think we're inferior or superior. It's so easy. But that does not mean having resources in and of themselves is wrong. It's not wrong. As we said before, at the beginning of the book of Job, Job was already the greatest man in the East, and now at the end of the book, he has twice as much as he had before. So he had a lot. And yet God says of Job that Job turns away from evil, Job 1.8. And then at the end of the book, God commends Job again. So for, for Job, having wealth did not lead him to evil. Job is not unjust with his wealth. And for some of us, perhaps that's a new category. Some of us might think wealth equals evil, or wealth by definition is some type of injustice. It's not. Someone could have a lot of prosperity without being unjust. One way to tell, of course, or one probable indicator of whether we are being just or unjust with our prosperity is what we do with it. What we do with our wealth will largely tell us whether we have a healthy attitude toward it or not. Um, it'll be judged by what we do with it. Um, now, it's not, a, it's not a foolproof indicator of where our heart is. I, there could be mafia members who give a whole lot to the church. Don't know. Could be. Um, by the way, if we have any mafia here today, I, you're not, I, nobody tipped me off. I don't know. You, you haven't been uh, outed, so don't worry. Uh, but giving doesn't necessarily mean that our hearts are right in regard to prosperity. So looking at what we do with our resources is not 100% foolproof, but it's, it's one indicator. It's an indicator. Um, and in our text, we don't know the whole story of what Job did with his prosperity, but from what we are told, it seems Job is pretty outward-facing with his resources. Seems like his posture was to want to give instead of being focused on getting, getting, getting more. Two instances of Job's posture in this passage. So first, verse 15, he left an inheritance for both his sons and his daughters. And remember, Job is in a culture that would not automatically give an inheritance to daughters. Sons got an inheritance. Daughters didn't. So Job is doing something extra compared to the people around him. And it's being pointed out because Job is different. He's being outward facing with his resources. Parents in that culture would be much more concerned, much more focused on keeping family wealth with the sons because that's preserving the family line. The sons are the ones who will maintain property rights. If we give daughters property, it's, it's just going to be gone out of the family. When she marries a man from another family, it'll be in that family then. So the common thing to do would be to protect self, protect lineage, protect family, uh, be inward-facing with resources, keep it with sons. Uh, but Job is contrasted to that. He is outward-facing. He's give it away, give it away, give it away. Um, in Job's behavior, when we read this, it's written as commendable. Um, so the reader is supposed to admire Job for including his daughters. And I'd say we need to notice these things when they happen because there's so much disinformation that Scripture is somehow anti-woman simply because it is written in cultures that subjugated women. Um, in Scripture, that's true, Scripture was written in those cultures, but it was not of those cultures. Scripture is not of any culture. 
Scripture is always overturning and undermining errors in every culture. It corrected ancient people in some ways, and it corrects us in different ways. But what we see here in Job is him elevating a group that wasn't elevated in his culture, and it's seen as commendable. So that's what he does with his wealth. You might have also noticed uh, the names of the three daughters are listed, but none of the son's names are listed. And again, that's unusual for the surrounding culture at the time. It's giving his daughters a measure of status. Um, his daughters' names, by the way, I will not try to pronounce them. You did a great job. You see how I get other people to read Scripture before the sermon? That's pretty clever, isn't it? So then I don't have to pronounce biblical names. But the first name, which I won't pronounce, the meaning of it is warmth or affection. The meaning of the second name is a pleasant fragrance, like cinnamon. Those are lovely aren't they? Warmth, affection, fragrant, cinnamon. Those yes, nice names. You want to know, do you don't want to know the meaning of the third daughter's name? Horn of paint. Horn of paint. That sounds ridiculous, right? It's not as bad as it sounds to us. Uh, it's referring to like face makeup, okay? Like ladies, you paint your face, you know, beautify yourself. So maybe it's like calling your daughter Eyeshadow? I should have done some research before. Uh, Estee Lauder, Maybelline, I don't, you know, something like that, giving your daughter that kind of name. But these three daughters, even the third one, uh, clearly very dear to Job. You get that from their names, you get that from their inheritance, you see Job giving them a status and a worth the rest of the society around them likely isn't giving them. That's one piece of evidence. Job is more about giving than amassing or protecting his own uh, lineage. Second piece of outward-facing evidence is how Job treats these friends and family that show up in verse 11. Um, his brothers, his sisters, and all who had known Job before his trouble came to him, they show up and they bring him gifts. And Job hosts them in his house. He feeds them. But notice they show up now because he's back on his feet when they have been strangely absent for like 40 chapters. They did not bring him a gift when he was down and out to comfort him. They bring him a gift now that he has influence again. Those are not real friends. They seem like fair weather friends at best and maybe pretty slimy at the worst. Um, I mean, but Job, he doesn't kick them out. He hosts them. If you want a piece of evidence that Job is pretty compassionate toward others, this is it, right? Because I, you can answer for yourself. I think if I had been through what Job had been through and all my friends had left me in the middle of it, except for the ones who were miserable comforters and added to my suffering, they stuck around, like Steve said a few weeks ago, but everybody else left, right? And now I'm back on my feet and these friends and family show up what would you say to them? I'd say, where were you all before? And if you weren't going to come comfort me when I was experiencing the worst suffering imaginable, I don't want you around now. Like, take your gift and go. Thank you very much. But Job doesn't say that. Job hosts these people who abandoned him. You want to talk about being outward facing with your resources. This is it. You know what this is an example of? Um, in the New Testament, Jesus, rather oddly, uh, Luke 16, 9, says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. 
That's weird, isn't it? Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. Jesus says that. And it's odd. But Jesus is like, if you have money, people are going to come around. They will. And sure, they're probably deadbeats and moochers. But don't kick them out. Don't squander that opportunity. Lean into that principle. If people are hanging around you, you can have an influence in their lives. If you are outward facing with your resources, even to people who only show up when times are good, you can really make a positive difference in this world. So do it. When Jesus brings it up, it's in the context of evangelism. Okay, so that is the goodness of prosperity. The goodness of prosperity. Lastly, true prosperity. Uh, Our true prosperity is the best is always yet to come. The best is not what Job gets in chapter 42. That is not the best. Even though he was the greatest man in the East times two. Even though grandkids down to the fourth generation. Not the best. The best is yet to come. Because think. I mean, for the most part, Job gets a happy ending. But it's not a completely happy ending. His family that passed away earlier in the book, they never came back to life. So he lost them forever, and he's going to have a hole in his soul, no matter how many other children he has or how big his family gets. And then Job himself dies. So that's still a tragedy. He's got all these grandkids. His family seems to love him a bunch, and then he dies. It's sad, right? I mean, did you ever have a favorite grandparent that passed away? You weren't like, yay, it was sad. So here we are at the end of the book of Job with mostly a happy ending, but also with some disappointment. On the one hand, we're we're grateful so much was restored to Job. And probably most of us hope that God might bless us in a similar way to how he blessed Job. We might ask even, how could I convince God to give me what he gave Job? That's on one hand. We want what Job has, but on the other hand, we kind of don't want what Job has. We ache for what wasn't restored. And what are we supposed to do with that? We're happy and we're not happy. It's a bit unresolved, and that's how the book of Job ends. And maybe you would say, well, that's how life works. Some losses can be recovered, other, other losses cannot, and in, and, but always the end comes regardless. But with God, that's not the end. Even from the first pages of Scripture, the Bible is looking forward to when God will restore all things. That evil will one day be squashed and totally wiped out. The brokenness of the world will be mended. All diseases will end. The hurt that we cause each other will cease. And even death is going to be reversed. Loved ones will be reunited in eternity and for eternity through Christ's work on our behalf and our faith in it. The lingering questions we have at the end of the book of Job are answered by the rest of the storyline of Scripture. In other words, our hope isn't Job. Our hope is someone far better than Job. Our hope is Jesus. Because like Job, Jesus was outward facing with his resources to deadbeats and moochers. But unlike Job, Jesus gave up everything he had for us. Like Job, Jesus suffered even though he hadn't sinned. But unlike Job, Jesus carried our sin when he suffered. Like Job, Jesus was attacked by Satan. But unlike Job, Jesus volunteered for the job. Like Job, Jesus was restored. But unlike Job, when Jesus was restored, he rose back to life conquering sin and death forever, securing for us our eternal home. 
Like Job's restoration reversed the work of Satan in his life, Jesus' resurrection also reversed the work of evil. But unlike Job, Jesus' resurrection will eventually undo all the evil that has ever taken place and remake the world in such a way that all sad things will become untrue. Listen, your future as a Christian is not what was restored to Job. Your future as a Christian is way better than that because it's in Jesus. One reason why listening to a prosperity gospel message is so frustrating is because they're aiming too low. God has not promised financial wealth or a long life in the ways we would normally think of them, right? Prosperity preachers are aiming for Job, and that's too low. God has not promised us that. We should not be pacified with the trinkets that Job had when real treasure is available. God has promised us true riches. He has promised us Jesus. So aim for Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2.9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Even Job, even with everything that Job had on this earth, when Job stepped into eternity, I'm sure everything that he had previously been given suddenly seemed as if it were nothing. Because at that moment, when he saw what no eyes had seen, and he heard what no ear had heard, he realized up until that moment, he had really never had anything. The best is always ahead of you, Christian. No matter how great you're doing in this world, you have not peaked. Isn't that good news? You have not peaked. You will never peak, actually, because in eternity, we will be captivated by the glory of God himself, and that is a treasure that we will never get to the bottom of. No matter how much of him we have, there will always be more of his greatness to experience. His mercies are new every morning forever. He is the ultimate treasure. He is the treasure we were made for. He is the treasure that if he is at the proper place in our hearts, everything else will be as it should be. Put him in the center of your heart and you will have the proper relationship with wealth, not over skew in either direction. You won't feel inferior or superior. You'll be captivated by the one you are meant to be captivated with, living for him, the one who gave up everything for you. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for Christ. Thank you that he is a true treasure, Lord. Thank you for giving us so much more than we could ever ask or imagine in him with, through relationship with him to you. Father, we pray that we would be captivated by true treasure, true riches. That it would properly align us to this world, the wealth in this world. And like you, Lord, that we would be outward facing with any prosperity that we have, not wanting to get more, but wanting to give more. May that be our hearts, Lord. Uh, we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Dan. Let's all stand and respond to that.
Come to you. May we sing your praise and where we fall short and where we are weak, God, bring us to you. Give us the energy to sing your praise. God, we give you the glory. We thank you for your son, Jesus, in his name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Thanks to our worship team and thanks to you for being here. That song's come to mean a lot to me personally over the last 
seven weeks as we've gone through Job, and congratulations, you all are now graduates uh, in the uh, course of Job. You know, one of the things we always encourage people to do is to ask questions. We love questions, and I still have questions about the book of Job. We don't expect all of the questions to just get answered here in the end. Oh, okay, everybody lives happily ever after. No matter what it is that you're going through or whatever, we'd love to pray with you and just be of encouragement and journey with you as you process some of the things that we've addressed. Well, if you're visiting for the first time or you're a long-time attender, member here, we want to encourage you to go to bridges.info for your next step. If you're visiting with us, you can connect with us at bridges.info and find out ways to get plugged in. We'd love to know that you're here. Uh, maybe you share a prayer request with us. Maybe you have a question you'd like to ask Pastor Dan in relation to this message or anything having to do with Christianity. We'll do our best to follow up with you and to answer those questions. There's a link for the questions there at bridges.info. You'll also find a link there to get plugged in through uh, ways that we try to serve our community and show love to our neighbor and compassion. You'll find ways to do that at bridges.info there at the service opportunities link. You'll also find a link there, members and attenders, uh, to give financially. And here during these summer months, as we are going to move our way through the summer and people are going to be coming and going, this is a way to stay plugged into the life of the church and to keep the ministries here going. The end of our fiscal year is the end of August, and so we want to finish strong. And so you can give uh, online uh, at bridges.info. You'll always, on Sundays, also have a chance to give financially at the back uh, there at those um, well black boxes there as you leave that those are secure. And a couple other closing things I just want to bring to your uh, attention. One is which I've been asked to share uh, that we are looking, well, let me just put it like this. If you're new to Bridges or if you're not super plugged in, you may not realize that our governing structure as a church is that we are elder-led. We are led by a, a group of elders. The biblical role of elders is found in the New Testament. And so we, we have people who serve for a season and then they move off. And coming in, in the coming weeks, we have three of our elders who are moving off of the elder board. Their uh, season as elders has uh, moved on, and so they are getting off, uh, uh, and so that others can be raised up uh, to move into that role. So we are looking for nominations for new elders, new individuals to serve as elders, and if you're a member of Bridges Community Church, you can let us know about that. Uh, is Al Kruger here today? Al, are you here? Where's, that? Where's Al? There's Al. You can talk to Al. Al is putting together a, a list of names, or you can talk to any of our church elders. You can talk to Pastor Dan or whatever. If you have a name or two that you'd like to put forth, we uh, are asking for elders in alignment with 1 Timothy chapter 3. You'll learn about the credentials uh, and the qualifications of a biblical elder there. And also, if you're one of our uh, people who receive our weekly emails, you'll find more information there. But Al, I know, would love to have some more names. He's got a nominating committee, and uh, we'd love to get those names in advance for those three elders getting off so that we can talk to those individuals and discern what the Lord would have us do in that role. I also want to just uh, close what we did last week, a special picnic afterwards to kick off the summer. Thank you to those who were a part of putting together those things. And I especially, yeah, there were people out there 
moving tables and chairs and grilling and cleaning up and all that kind of stuff. I want to give special recognition. She doesn't want it, but I'm going to give it to her. Anyway, Lilia Gore is right here on the fourth row. Lily is the person that you may talk to if you call the church office and say, where in the world is Steve Durant? I can't find him right now. Lilia may be the one to, to answer the phone. She's uh, often there, gosh, just morning and afternoon, and she's receiving emails and coordinating things so that our, our uh, systems work well. And Lily, it worked well last week. Thank you for your hard work. You did amazing. And uh, she, her husband's stand right next to her. So we love that family and their boys. So if you don't know Lilia, get to know Lilia. Thank you for that. So we're going to uh, depart from here, but we just, again, would want to encourage you to talk to Matt and to Susie. They're going to be at the table out there in the lobby. You can talk to them more about their book, maybe even purchase a book. Uh, I know my wife, when I got out there, she's like, we're going to get some of those books. Yes, we're going to get some of those books for our family and share them with others that we know, and maybe you'd like to do the same. But we know you'll want to talk to them. Matt and Susie, we're so glad that you guys are here. Um, let me close this in a word of prayer, and then we'll head on out. I hope that you all have a great week. Father, we come to you with our worship, just as we sang. You are worthy and good and bad. You give, you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I pray no matter what season of life anyone here in the room is in right now, anyone watching this online is in right now, I pray that we would cast our care on you, our cares, because you're good and because you invite us to come with our questions and our, and our hurts and our laments and our worship. So thank you for being such a personal God. As we leave here, God, use us to be salt and light this week in the community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great rest of your day.